Good evening, you're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight, I'm joined by PC Gamers, Fraser Brown. Hello! And we also welcome back Gamesbeat's Commandant of the Ostfront, <laughs> Rowan Kaiser. How, Hello! Why is my intro so much more boring than that? That's not very fair. Because Rob can never remember what my actual job is. <laughs> it's PC Guest Post Editor, right? Mm-hmm. Boom, well, there you go. But it's that's not a real care. job. It's because I care. <laughs> that's that's not a real... You, that's not a title. Now, Commandant, that's a title. Grand that's Vizier. Something. I'll swap. If you want to be PC Gamer News Editor, I'll be Commandant. That'll be fun. Uh, I actually get, like, nightmares about having to do news. <laughs> I just get daymares. Hmm. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about familiar games tackling new settings. And I think this is prompted for the most part by, uh, an experience that at least Rowan and I had this, this past weekend as we started to dig into Steel Division 2, uh, which was on its second or third beta weekend, I I I want to say, but I can't really, I I I can't swear to it. It was the first time we'd played it. And we thought we were pretty up to speed on Steel Division. Um, we knew how we were bad. Yeah, we like we, in familiar ways. Like we understood the problems that we were routinely failing to solve. And then we fired up Steel Division Two, and it felt like a completely different game, but in some really interesting ways. Um, in ways that were really closely tied to its setting and the ways that it is trying to draw a distinction between the combat in Normandy, uh, that was the subject of Steel Division 1, and the Eastern Front combat that is the subject of Steel Division 2. Up front, I should also just clarify... uh, we are aware and discussing a lot internally uh, the labor issues connected to Steel Division. If you don't know, there was a strike there, uh, I think, late last year. And uh, earlier this year, apparently people were involved in that strike. Some of them were laid off, uh, allegedly for other reasons, but uh, certainly, you know, for, for all appearances, it did look a bit like retaliatory firings. Uh, we, we are discussing that among ourselves, and we're also working to try to come to some understanding about like what actually transpired at Eugen Systems. Uh, and so that issue is not forgotten, but nevertheless, uh, this this game is an interesting jumping off point uh, for this topic, and we're certainly not going to completely set aside uh, the issues about uh, labor practices at Eugen Systems. Uh, but returning to Steel Division 2, Rowan... Can you explain what what kept going wrong for you? <laughs> well, the German division sucked. Um, no, so there's a I don't remember where I first started hearing this, but a thing that is stuck in my head about like how describing how World War II was won in Europe is like ninety percent the Eastern Front and ten percent the Western Front, and. Uh, this game feels like it's like 90% bigger, or nine times bigger, or whatever, than uh, Steel Division 1 did. Um, and I don't think it's all that much different, like, conceptually. It's just that 
they have made some tweaks to how many units you have on the map, how effective those units are dealing with whatever line of sight business they are dealing with so that they seem to be firing over longer distances and just like it feels like there's a hell of a lot more bulk and a hell of a lot more just like absolute massacre kill zones to the point where even though i would say it's only maybe two or three times bigger in and of itself uh steel division 2 feels like it's got nine times more stuff going on because steel division 1 was a game that took up a lot of mental energy like yeah possibly the most of any game that i play uh and Steel Division 2 takes up even more in a way that feels like, oh shit, this is where the war is really happening. It's like, instead of one tank, you're dealing with like four or five tanks more often. Uh, you know, in Steel Division 1, you, you have like that single tank busting through the hedgerows and yeah. suddenly turning the battle, where here you have like just gigantic tank battles across a slight ravine that just blows everything up on every side. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a slight increase in, like, practical scope that takes up a huge mental scope that uh, feels right for the Eastern Front. Fraser, did you get any chance to uh, play Steel Division? or? Um... Yeah, I played quite a lot, yeah. Um, I Sorry, got two, a... Steel Division 2. Yeah, I, I got a build just before the uh, the beta... And I played a few skirmishes, and I took the breakthrough mode for a spin as well. That's the uh, asymmetrical one where you've got one side basically controls the whole map, and the other side is attacking. Uh, So it kind of showcases all the new defensive structures Mm -hmm. and turtling possibilities, which is really different from Steel Division 1 as well. You can actually pull back and protect yourself and fortify rather than just hiding men in buildings you're actually p- building new things uh which which feels quite a dramatic change uh, but the the stuff Rome was talking about the scale definitely has a big impact um not just with artillery but with like all vehicles their effective range is like so much greater uh, which means that engagements can start a lot sooner and people can get wiped out very, very quickly. Um, like, I sort of like, why would you even want infantry in this battle? I just imagine these people just fleeing into the woods while everything explodes from something they cannot see. And they've got all these little tricks that increases the range even more. So just on their own, uh, the range has been expanded but then you've got these commander units with radios and things like that, which kind of share their their vision with other units. So you've got a, a kind of command chain of, uh, of vision, uh, allowing artillery to just cover the entire battlefield. Uh, it's pretty ridiculous. It's, uh, yeah, I think the, the range thing is huge. Like, wh- basically, it feels like they literally multiplied distances by a factor of two. I am yeah. pretty sure the max range of the 88 in Steel Division 1 was 1,000 meters, and that made it one of the longest-ranged uh, weapons in the game. I think now for Steel Division 2, it just shoots 2,000 meters, and the lowly like 37-millimeter uh, you know, AT gun is now capable of, of striking targets at 1,000 meters. Uh, but even that gets complicated by 
like you really have to have internalized armor thickness a lot more because there's so many more tanks now. Uh, yeah. And so like it's all tanks. <laughs> it is, except for when it's infantry too. That's that's the thing. But I, I think the thing that really fast one of the things that really jumped out at me here was you know, just taking the range thing, uh, in Steel Division One, it felt like everyone could be fighting their their kind of discrete battle. Right, that you know, you might be fighting a pretty intense battle to take over, uh, you know, a couple groves of trees and establish a foot town, a foothold in sort of a crossroads town, and that could be an entire like involved thing where you are hand positioning units and you really I gotta you know get a machine gun up into this, uh, you know, into into this old church and you're you're doing all of that and you're really involved in that sort of micro thing. And you don't really need to worry too much about what is happening to the players to your left or right. Like, yes, occasionally you'll get a message from me being like, uh, I lost all my guys and um, <laughs> they're about to cut the, the edge of the map off. Occasionally I will do that and that, then it is everybody's problem. But for the most part, you could sort of tunnel vision on, on your thing. What was wild to me is we were playing some really big uh, – we were playing with the 3MA community with a um, – we got one of the 5v5 uh, maps where five AIs versus five players. And it was, first of all, it was pretty freaking spectacular just as as a spectacle. But the thing that really like just blew my mind was that at a certain point, I was advancing across a pretty wide front uh, on open ground. And I was clear, uh, you know, for 500 meters in front of me, 500 meters out of the flank. So I thought I was good. And then all my tanks just start blowing the hell up uh, because they are taking flanking fire from the literal edge of the map. I was in the dead center. They were taking flanking fire from like the literal uh, left edge of the map uh, because basically like, well, Rowan had failed to do his job. <laughs> but but also <laughs> but I think the, the main thing was that there was this like Rowan to his front had this giant plane in front of him, just a giant flat plane. And there were so many German tanks on it, they were just able to start doing flanking fire uh, onto my forces. And suddenly, the entire sort of... You know how you sort of have like an orientation of the map in your head that you're like, this is forward, this is to the side, etc. Taking that flanking fire forced me to like mid-battle realize like, oh shit, like I just can't keep pushing forward the way I would in like old Steel Division. At this point, now I literally need to basically pivot to the left and now the like battlefront is running diagonally across the map, and I need to join up with Rowan and, and push across to the side. And it just created this real sense of, yeah, this makes perfect sense for a giant like armor clash across the steppe, right? Where, yeah, there's nothing to prevent good anti-tank weapons from just wreaking havoc uh, on stuff that is, you know, 800 thousand meters away like you had like you have to worry about that stuff and it just struck me as being so different from steel division one's kind of like uh knife fight model of of warfare and it felt it, it became so much more a game about just mass movements across vast swaths of territory where if you're like if you're being really precious about positioning units you are probably I think yeah. it changes a little bit 
if you, depending on the mode you're playing in, I think I, one thing I noticed in, in Breakthrough is that actually you still, even though it does feel like this grander battle where all the different kind of elements are coming together, there are still little discrete conflicts going on in the map, often surrounding like fortifications. So even just putting some trenches and barbed wire down can halt the enemy for quite a while. Um, allowing you to focus if you're playing solo on a completely different part of the map while the AI kind of just handles that shit and locks that area down and they'll be there for quite a while uh, it takes a while a big push to really overcome that uh, so it still has those kind of closer range knife fights as you said from Steel Division 1 I think one of the most interesting things that I saw in terms of the sort of macro map idea of the step versus the hedgerows that create the more discrete things. Although there, there could be some, um, like on the far left of that big map, I would, there was an area that I could like very easily get a few units in, hold down and push forward into. There just wasn't too much to gain there. Like it was cut off slightly from the main battle, which was these two hills with a giant plane in between them. Um, but uh, the thing I noticed is that there was a spot that was sort of, we were doing uh, the five people and I was on the far left uh, for both of these battles. And there was this spot that was sort of halfway between the far left and the center left uh, that even the center could like poke at. That was a victory point. That is a difference in Steel Division yeah. 2 is that there are victory points now instead of just like take the territory or blow everything up. Um but there was a victory point at a crossroads that was within our half of the map, but it was within all the sight lines of the enemies far right, center right, and center. So they could hold it without even putting troops there because we had to push them back, like in mass, away from like their core, you know, where they end up based on how the map, like, settles in in order to actually safely sit in that spot um which you know i don't i don't know if that's like a really eastern front thing but it definitely felt like a really bigger scope thing yeah i mean it's certainly um you know you know you can find like anecdotal evidence certainly for for any of this uh but i think the thing that maybe felt the most Eastern Front to me in some ways is just the degree to which this no longer felt about... Let me say... Let me, it feels like the demands being placed on you in this game to execute combined arms attacks are much greater than they were in Steel Division 1. Because... And I think this goes to the sheer amount of armor on the... Uh, you know, on the map at any given time where you were literally fielding like, you know, full tank companies roll onto the map. You'll have like a dozen Stugs appear in kind of a phalanx. And uh, that's just a different reality from Steel Division 1. You know, one Stug was like, okay, that's a menace to some infantry squads, but I don't really need to worry about it. Uh, if you've got a dozen Stugs moving in formation across, uh, you know, open ground, it almost doesn't matter whether they're good against armor. They're just shooting high explosive shells. 
there's a dozen tanks with big ass guns all blasting away at once. Like, like no tank crew is just going to chill out and take that fire. And so those things will just, will just clear space. But I, I, the other thing is you've got so many different types of armor of different qualities. And so here's, this is a front where, you know, IS two tanks uh, that the Soviets are fielding will basically shrug off uh, even 88 millimeter anti-tank rounds at max range. You just don't have the, the penetration power to uh, breach that armor and, dest- and destroy the tank. And so, again, where in previous games you would kind of have this rock, paper, scissors uh, where one type of unit was, for the most part, very effective against uh, the unit it was meant to counter. There were only a few cases where, like, you know, super heavy tanks like the King Tiger uh, posed especially challenging problems for for allied anti-tank, but it wasn't unsolvable, and there weren't many of those. Here, you're routinely running into those kinds of uh, challenges where, you know, you know, IS-2 tanks or, or the KVs are frequently just more resistant to German anti-tank weapons, and certainly the guns on German tanks, where even if you've got positioning in the first shot, uh, you're just not getting the kill, and then the return fire kicks your ass. And so what this game's increasingly asking you to do is, like, use things like smoke to control even the range at which you begin your engagement, right? Like, it's not use, use smoke to obscure in advance. It's also use, use smoke to basically let your tanks roll up to the embarrassingly close range at which their weapons are finally effective. Because if you don't do that, you're just going to watch these units clean house uh, at a distance. Uh, but that that does mean that, again, you're not just calling up the right unit. You know, it's no longer, I need to find the exact right unit for this one situation in front of me. That's not how this battlefield works anymore. It is increasingly about, okay, I need to drop artillery here. I need to drop artillery in these four locations, a smoke line here, and I need to have infantry and, you know, and tank units go up all at once to this location. It all has to happen pretty well, uh, pretty well coordinated. So interestingly, I like half really agree and half really disagree. Yeah. I think playing Steel Division 1 at a high level, you really needed to have that micro. Um, it was with smaller doses, but like that was the point where I sort of fell apart with it, was that like I just did not have the patience to figure out like exactly what combination of uh, you know, artillery fire smoke yeah. from planes and then infantry marching in combination with the tanks coming in behind them or ahead of them or whatever was supposed to work. Whereas in Steel Division two, the part that I agree with you on is that the units don't seem to have that like rock, paper, scissors aspect quite so much. It's it's a bit more muddied, and so whatever you happen to have tends to be uh useful at least at some level. Like it's not just um, you know, I only want my artillery focusing on the infantry, I want the tanks blasting the other tanks. It's like everything is blasting everything. Um, uh, which is probably better for me as a somewhat more casual player. Um, the the micro that Steel Division <laughs> One seemed to uh, demand, but the thing that uh, I find really interesting and in getting back sort of to the the premise here, yeah. how these settings can alter games that we thought we were familiar with, is that in Steel Division One, 
I liked artillery. Like, artillery and infantry were the things that I thought I was most effective with. Uh, and in Steel Division 2, artillery was the thing that I had the hardest time getting together. Um, and I think this is because the scope has been increased. Uh, selecting a single gun and having it try to blast a single place or a single unit feels much less effective than, like, sticking four tanks in a spot where you know they're going to be shooting things. Um, so the micromanagement for artillery, they also seemed harder to find with more units. Yes. Like, the guns are bigger, so they're still as individuals and not quite as the, the in mount. Ah, on my uh, uh, big groups of things. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why my uh, fuck on mass. Yeah, I don't know why my my mouth was not was not dealing with that. Uh, but yeah, it it seems harder to actually go and find and click those artillery things. So what ended up happening is that I found a lot more use out of planes as like general gigantic artillery things where like we would see the Soviets with like a huge bunch of T-34s coming in and like starting to push on our lines. This was the area that we needed to push them back. So a single bomber run, which is still sort of on the macro yeah. way because that's just sort of how, sort of how uh, steel division works could like force eight tanks to retreat at once so that ended up being a lot more useful than the artillery where in steel division one it was vice versa and i'm not sure that's intentional i think that's an unintentional byproduct but artillery I, can be even like more useful now that we've got these clear kind of victory points that it's even more obvious where people are gonna attack so you can make sure that that area is covered by artillery. Yeah. It doesn't really matter if they can't target specific units. If they've just got this little like village or farm locked down, anyone coming in there is going to get blown up. Well, I think where I really identify with what Rowan is saying is that uh, one of the things this game is doing, in most cases I think it is helpful, but less so with artillery, uh, a lot like Ruse... Uh, you know the the our my my former uh favorite Eugen game. Uh, this is a game that like likes to as you zoom out, stacks of units sort of converge into larger groups that with one click you can just order. So like when you got a bunch of artillery units in close uh or or particular type like a group of mortars of identical identical caliber, if they're all sitting near each other, if you zoom out. They merge into a single stack that'll have the number four on it, and that tells you there's four, there's four mortars there. And then you can control them as one. But what that doesn't let you do is, like, create a walking barrage where, like, a different gun is, you know, you're firing basically on a line. And you're having, you're, you know, you're sort of blocking off an entire area. And so what I what I found myself doing a lot, Fraser, was, you know, instead of just blind firing all in, in one spot, what, I, what I'd start doing before I started pushing on, like, you know, a village in a forest is I would be, like, running back, like, I'd be looking at each of my artillery pieces and basically having them target a slightly different spot and just cover the entire area in the hopes that whatever the hell was there... Uh, would get rattled and be easy pickings for the infantry that was advancing. But then I also needed to turn off that area barrage once my units <laughs> caught up with it because there's nothing more embarrassing than wasting like a platoon of your own, uh, you know, pioneers. I don't um, think this would change anything specifically, but it's worth noting as well. I think the um, the way that 
the units are presented when you zoom out and they're all stacked together, you can actually tweak that. So it's like optional. So it's like a streamlined option, but I think you can actually have it the old way as well. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's little things like uh, telling units only to take efficient shots so that they don't mm-hmm. open fire at max range if they don't think they can kill the unit, um, which is critical for anything that's going to be engaging a tank, right? Because if you're if you're firing at a massively armored like Soviet tank at max range, you are just going to make it angry. Uh, <laughs> and so that, that's a thing to watch out for. But I think what really struck me here is that we've seen games make this transition before. Uh, you know, the, the Western front is the easy thing to sell a lot of like Western video game audiences on, right? It's, it's familiar beats like Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, uh, etc. Um, and so we, we've seen a lot of different games sort of have a Western front entry or two, and then they go to the Eastern front and they try to bring that same general game design ethos over the same, same basic game mechanics and systems over to the Eastern front. And it often ends up to me, at least feeling a little bit like a reskin or, uh, or it, it just doesn't work quite as well. I think a lot of the transition from close combat two to close combat three, when I consider this issue where close combat two is, uh, you know, the market garden campaign, it's yes, it's, it's combined arms operations, but it's really heavily driven by infantry fighting over, uh, you know, tiny Dutch uh, towns and in some Dutch cities and armor is there in a supporting role. You don't, you, you just don't have, giant like tank playgrounds in close combat too. And that's not really what that game system is about, right? Like the big thing in close combat, uh, that entire series is the psychological model of the stress units are under and sort of the personal, the personalization of individual, you know, soldiers in rifle squads, individual like machine gun crews, snipers, and you're sort of meant to have that relationship. And a big part of that that game series, at least to start, was this idea that, uh, you know, how do you keep your infantry, mainly your infantry, how do you how do you keep them uh, motivated, uh, you know, in order under responding to commands in a terrifying combat environment? When close combat moved over to the Eastern Front with Close Combat 3, they really did attempt to take pretty much the same Close Combat we'd always known and just transpose it to the Eastern Front. And it's Close Combat 3, I think, is still regarded by fans of that series as a classic. A lot of people really like it. For me, I, you know, I enjoy it. But for me, it's never been as good as Close Combat 2, in part because... With Close Combat 3, you still had a system that was set up to promote a lot of really intimate sort of infantry battles, but the battlefields themselves and the tactics that succeeded in Close Combat 3 were tank rushes. That entire, you know, at a, after a certain point, most of that game began to feel like you are pushing tanks across a, a plane and just you know, having watching them smack into each other and uh, engage in these tank duels, and you, you'd micromanage those, but it no longer felt like a great close combat game. Rob, the close combat 
lover has logged in. Yeah, I was gonna say I don't have a huge amount to say about Ghost Cop. I pl- I think I played uh, the one that's in development right now, or most recently came out. I'm not sure. If oh, the uh, the Mighty First or the Bloody that's First? That's the one. It's not. Yeah, it's not out yet, is it? Or right. Is it? How was that? So like I. <sighs> I find it as someone who hasn't really. I've played like two, three close combats like a long time ago, so I kind of just jumped in and I didn't really know what I was doing, and the map was very hard to parse. Uh, but then I, I actually had quite a quite a lot of fun with it. There was the it was a single mission which was just advancing on like a farm, and then this lovely bucolic setting, lovely village. Uh, and there were Nazis hiding inside, and I had to chase them out. And there were tanks. There were quite a few tanks, but they didn't dominate the the battle. It was still kind of. I was still more concerned about the morale of my troops and keeping them moving down the hedgerows, uh, keeping them in cover. I I didn't. It wasn't like just like twenty tanks colliding against each other. It was like maybe four or five tanks on that yeah. map and that felt like a significant amount for the size of the map but they didn't kind of take over the fight yeah i think for and i think that's the risk right like it's different settings do have different types of combat and it you know the, the part of adapting is to is to figure out like what aspects of your design suit that setting and what aspects have to be sort of rethought. And I feel like with Steel Division 2, it at least looks like they made some clever choices about how you could sort of tweak ways that Steel Division works and basically create something that feels very new and authentic and specific to the Eastern Front. Whereas I think the close combat approach was this really coarse, like, well, there's more tanks on that front. There's more wide open battlefields. We will create new map sets and uh, we'll let you buy more tanks for your armies. And that should feel like the Eastern Front. And the result, you know, is that it it doesn't really. It it doesn't feel... um, It it doesn't feel like a very specific vision that the game is, is, is... is holding to it it mostly feels like uh you know an attempt at bringing across what we expect from an eastern front game but not necessarily uh creating a game design around those expectations um i think you know in a similar vein we see a little bit of this with the jump from company of heroes one to company of heroes two uh I was always really surprised by how much, at least at launch, the Soviet army in that game, like, like their, their big idea to make it Eastern Front was winter, right? Like, in terms of everything very, else... Very, very cold. Yeah. In terms of everything else, like, the Soviet army controlled a lot like the Americans, right? Where they had to build experience through the battle, and the Germans sort of were able to come in with greater proficiency to start. Um and so, to me, like, like Company of Heroes 2, at least the beginning, setting aside the campaign, felt very much like, okay, it's it's still basically the same dynamics we remember from the first game. It's just now we're using a different tile set. And then the concession they made to Eastern Front history is these winter maps where you would have um, deep freezes 
Yeah, it was very Frostpunk, now that I think about it, right? Like, Frostpunk, <laughs> like, it was very, like, oh, no, here comes the cold front. Better get your troops near the fires or everyone will freeze. Um, and that was not a popular feature. And, it, you know, now, now with more distance, in retrospect, it's kind of a cutesy idea, but it's also a really silly one, right? I don't think it helped that uh, a few people were quite miffed about the actual story of the campaign as well which they thought was disrespectful because it showed i don't know people getting like just they were having to pick guns off corpses or something like that and people were quite upset about how it showed the russian army and soviet army so that was i think didn't it get banned or like the publisher dropped it in in russia or something yeah so there were a couple which is ridiculous uh I don't know. Was the publisher One C over in Russia? I think it was. Uh, which, I think it was. Yeah. Which already is like, but they already had um, their own sort of RTS series, Men of War. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, which there is were, quite similar. There were some weird things with that, where specifically what you had was Coming of Heroes two, like like a lot of mainstream video game adaptations of World War two lifts a lot from movies, yeah. and they lifted from Enemy at the Gates which is a highly fictionalized version of the Eastern Front telling a story that we now know was also complete bullshit. Uh, Like, Enemy at the Gates is about the real-world story of this duel between this elite Russian sniper and this elite SS sniper, which we now know was completely made up. There was no... the, The duel didn't exist. This was, like, Soviet propaganda about... Uh, they had the sniper who was so deadly, the Germans sent their best sniper to hunt him down. And it's a great story, um, but, it, you know, it was it was complete bullshit. But anyway, Enemy at the Gates uh, also portrays memorably that scene where the guy with the bullhorn is, like, you know, telling these conscripts, uh, one gun per two men, uh, when the man in front of you is shot, you know, pick up, pick up his gun. And... That is also completely made up. There were human wave attacks on the Eastern Front, but by and large, uh, they were made by under unsupported infantry. They, they, you know, but they weren't unarmed infantry. Uh, so those portrayals, I think, did rankle a lot of people. But I think also at that time, you're dealing with uh, kind of a resurgent Russian nationalism of the time as well. That uh, certainly like was partly stoked by just political currents in uh, Russia. And and I think, you know, also a justly founded, uh, you know, aversion to having this part of their history told through this really Western lens where the Soviets are kind of these, uh, you know, masses who think nothing of their own lives and just beat the, beat the fascists with, uh, you know, sheer bloody minded indifference. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a there's a lot going on around that release, uh, and that controversy definitely was you know an early example of online activists uh, losing losing their shit for for <laughs> political purposes, and then also a game that did really lean in hard to some enduring myths about uh, how the Soviets operated on that front. Oh, that's that's another thing that we're dealing with here, though, is that it's not just 
you know, the actuality of the war on the Eastern and the Western fronts, but also the mythology of the idea of heroism and so on, because, you know, the Russians have a view of their actions in World War II as like the pinnacle of modern Russia, uh, at a level that most Americans or Westerners tend to see the Soviet Union as somewhat more morally ambiguous, to put it lightly. Uh, so, like, just about everyone can agree that the Americans and the British and the Canadians and the Free French over in Steel Division One or over in Company of Heroes or whatever are definitely better than the Nazis that they're fighting against. <laughs> Um, to the point where it's real easy to, like, have a whole heroic aesthetic surrounding, you know, anything in Normandy. Um, and Steel Division, for example, doesn't really lean into that, but, like, look at the name of Company of Heroes. Uh, don't even really have to play it too much. And then, you know, Close Combat, which is simulating all of these individual soldiers' stories, we're getting that sort of... Saving Private Ryan vibe of these are the individual soldiers that are led by Tom Hanks or whatever, and you know we we can sort of adapt that mythology to them in a way that the Eastern Front is a little more difficult to actually do. So yes, there's I think that aesthetically there's a lot to a lot going on as part of a game's design. Do you think there's something as well to this notion of? Um... So the thing I keep returning to when I when I think about the the things I really tend to struggle with about Eastern Front games and really like Warsaw Pact tactics type games, right? Like these sorts of uh, you know mass mass armies uh, operating. If if you sort of think about the Steel Division One model and certainly the way that Company of Heroes tends to operate, you're dealing with smaller numbers of troops. And in a lot of cases, yes, there are moments you need to commit them and put them at risk and sacrifice some. Uh, but for the most part, like if you li- if you call a squad onto the map in in Company of Heroes one or two, and you immediately get that squad massacred, you have just seriously screwed up, right? Like the opportunity cost of that mistake was huge. You just it took time to build those resources. You immediately like ha- watch them get thrown away because you made a mistake, and so you learn really quickly not to do that. And the Company of Heroes, like, tends to be very precious about how troops are being positioned, right? This is a game of, uh, you know, firing arcs of machine guns. Uh, what strength are the walls of one individual building? Uh, all these things really matter a lot in Company of Heroes. And as they matter in, in you know, in pretty much any war game, but they matter at this really intimate scale in Company of Heroes. And we tend to think of think about it in this like i don't want to just throw any of these guys away like i need to be efficient with each and every one of these units i think when you sort of take that approach when you consider how the eastern front operated um there were no brilliant tactical solutions that could make that geography those two types of armies meeting each other on roughly equal terms there was nothing there that could really make that could give you the perfectly efficient or like bloodless victory uh, on the Eastern front. Like that's like, that is simply not, that was simply not a possibility on that front. Um, 
And, like, like yes, all the war was bloody, but, like, casualty figures in the Eastern Front are enormous. And a lot of the tactics, then, that, are, that are, were sort of adopted over there and, and remained part of Soviet doctrine is this notion that um, there's kind of a greater efficiency you need to utilize, which is sort of weight of numbers, like the sacrifices themselves, the the forces you commit, uh, the the place and time you choose to overwhelm somebody and just absorb the losses. Uh, that is part of waging those war, the, those those war that war, and uh, you know fighting these battles efficiently. But I think it's a form of efficiency that a lot of other war games that sort of chart these more heroic narratives that are brought to us from war movies i think they they tend to teach us to be really averse to that sort of logic and then you come to an eastern front game where it's like what are you doing you got to get i'm sorry you need to send all those tanks and infantry out into that open field that's covered by artillery maybe this is why the ai has been kicking your ass (laughs) maybe we figured it out there there was a point in steel division 2 where like the enemies were coming into a town that I had, like, one or two squads of infantry left in, and I just, like, no hesitation, just artillery bombed the fuck out of the town. I was just like, (laughs) those guys are gone. This is the best for everyone involved. Sorry, my dudes. Um, That's That was, like, a really impressive moment in terms of just, like, well, now I'm a Soviet commissar. Congratulations. There was a battle where, um, God, my, my teammate, uh, literally, like, was just getting hammered by waves of Soviet units. And the only thing keeping at bay was he basically brought on all the German rocket artillery that was in his army build and just, like, literally just blanketed the battlefield in front of him with rocket artillery fire which is just it's like it's just devastating curtains of high explosives like you basically render like quadrants of the map uninhabitable and that was that was sort of a game winning strategy it was kind of this blunt force like well time to basically just create a sheet of flame uh in front of my army uh as i as i try to advance and it kind it mostly worked uh but it started to run into trouble because he ran through literally all the munitions in his army. You get a limited number of supply <laughs> trucks. And so he's like, um, do you have more trucks with shells on them? And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send what I have left over. But I, like, this is just not something that would really be, for the most part, would really be an option in Steel Division two, Steel Division 1, the scale at which it operates. Um and I, Not I the know. scale, but shock and awe was still very much a kind of big part of Steel Division One. Yeah. Just the, like not even, not even trying to necessarily do damage with these massive strikes, but just to scare the shit out of people so much that they run away. Uh, and of course, morale remains like an important factor. Yeah, a lot of times you're beating tanks by just scaring their crews. Like yeah, absolutely. You can't hurt these things. Because uh, you don't have the position, you don't have the weapons. But you know, if you can just terrify enough tank crews, they will start to backpedal out of a place, and you can maybe gain some position. Um, but yeah, it's it just when I think about other games that have made this transition, a lot of them begin from this assumption that 
Uh, you know, the original game design is kind of meant to echo things we're familiar with from, uh, you know, games or movies about Normandy. And Steel Division 2 kind of catches my eye because it seems to basically, while the mechanics are still very similar, it understands that, like, geography and scale do make for a meaningful difference here. Um, and I think, you know, some other games have, have, tended, to, have tended to shrink from that. Uh, I think Company of Heroes 2 ends up being one of those games where, uh, you know, the, the Soviet army has a different flavor of army, but it's still very reminiscent of, uh, you know, the, the American army that, that you've always commanded. Um, and the battlefields themselves still feel very similar uh, to, to stuff we recognize from, uh, from Company of Heroes 1. Um, Isn't it a shame, though, that a Company of Heroes 2 kind of ended with, with this great DLC, Ardennes Assault, which I felt is, I feel it's like the pinnacle of yep. Company of Heroes. Um, if they'd just done one more and sort of gone back to the Eastern Front with that sort of care and attention and sort of almost like understanding, um, it would be so much better. Obviously, it couldn't be anything like Ardennes Assault. Ardennes Assault is, is very much not an east you couldn't replicate that in eastern front in its like not to the extent that it was done uh in ardennes assault anyway but something where you had that dynamic map these random objectives those surprises and you could still pull out the sort of hollywood eastern front bullshit that some people like. You can still have, like, sniper battles. I remember, actually, in Ardennes Assault, there was, like, you have to find this person and assassinate them and things like that. So they could still have that. They could still chuck in the cold, but actually make a campaign that was interesting. Yeah, the lack of there being another Ardennes Assault-type game in that series does kind of... Like, I'm glad we've got the one we have, but it was such a good template, and it's oh, god damn it, it's just one of the best solo experiences in RTS. It's, it's like so everything good. that's awesome about skirmish modes, and then everything that's awesome about like scripted campaigns. Why did I do agree to do this podcast with the Ardennes Assault people again? Why? <laughs> Wait, are you, you a hater? Did this one? I haven't played it, but we did, like, I think the last time the three of us were on a show last year, it was all about how great Ardennes Assault was. That's because it's so good. <laughs> I, I frequently just, like, stop my tracks in the middle of the street and just look up at the sky and wonder, what would it be like if I was just playing Ardennes Assault right now? <laughs> uh, Alright, well, here, here's, here's another example. Uh, you know, turning into, turning toward maybe, like, slightly more serious war games for a second. Um... And not to put it that phrasing, but you know what I mean, like more more classic, <laughs> like you know more we consider like, uh, Grognardi. hex yeah hex based war games uh, that that are meant to be a little more simulational in in, in some ways. Um, I think maybe the most audacious attempt to do something like this is uh, you know the operational art of war, which kind of begins its premise as we don't. Well, the pretense of the operational art of war is that the game is uh, 
agnostic in terms of what conflict it's simulating, right? That literally it is a building set that can be applied to just about any setting in a 50-year span of time. And so, you know, the Operational Art of War, when it originally released, was a World War II-era war game, but also tried to encompass just any, any theater, uh, in that in that period, but also conflicts, uh, you know, like Korea, uh, things getting a little more into the jet age, um, and I that remains like I, I have very fond memories of that game. Uh, I have not like I've played the Operation Art of War three, and I think maybe that's oh they just released no it's four right they're they're on four now. Um, I think that was four where I started on Steam. Yeah, that's one. That's the one where I was like, I might be done with the system. I'm not sure, but it just isn't grabbing me as much. But I, I think the reason I come back to it a lot is because it's this really interesting attempt to say that you don't need a lot of specific mechanics or systems. Uh, what you can do is create a really flexible system. And then create a tool set with lots of options for like little house rules to adapt it to a specific context. And I think it remains, I I am persistently surprised by how well that roughly carries it off. But it is also striking the degree to which it relies a lot on scenario designers really having a fine understanding of the ways you can push that system to the to its limits uh and also understanding like that is a that is a game with sweet spots uh there there are there are things that game does really badly naval movement uh naval operations are not good in the operational war but out of the box that game really thinks that you can you can do it that the setting itself uh the the, the flexible enough system uh, can go to any uh, setting in history and somehow make it work. Uh, and so I think that's that's the approach that a lot of war game series adopt, right? It you know you be, you begin with a core set and then you expand it with similar ish conflicts in a rough span of history. You've got that a lot in tabletop war games as well, where it is the setting is ill defined. It's it's an era rather than yeah. a, a specific war. Yeah, no, I just either, because you were talking about the new one kind of turning you off, Rob, the fourth one. Like, why did that? Why Why are you done with the, the series? I think honestly is probably because it's a series now I've played for 20 years. I was like, <laughs> I, uh, like, I think that was it. I was like, it's a thing that, like, as long as they keep releasing those damn things, I will probably keep buying them. I'll probably, like, well, I want to, I want to make sure I always have the latest operational art of war if I want to scratch that itch. Much the same reason, like, I increasingly do not feel a pull to fire up Civ. Nevertheless, I'm always like, I, I need to make sure I can play Civ, right? All the Civs yeah. that I want at any given moment. This is why I make sure I'm reviewing it, and then I review it, and then I'm like, okay, I've done my Civ, yeah. so back to the other games. But I, I think the the other part of it is that I think when I first started playing the Operation Art of War, the what was enticing about it was it was partly the value proposition. You know, if you're a high school student, the Operation Art of War comes out, 
it is one war game for like 50 60 bucks and between the core set of scenarios and then user created scenarios it's potentially infinite right like hell yes sign me up i will do that like that is clearly that is the greatest war game of all time uh and i think <laughs> now at this point i've had a little more experience with playing like entire games that are really specific to one particular setting or theme and having sort of witnessed the you know <laughs> witnessed the power of like a really well considered design related to a particular theme uh it is increasingly hard to ignore the way that a game like the operational art of war creates a lot of like roughly plausible interpretations of like famous historical battles but also in the process makes all of them feel a little bit generic right it feels like maybe you're playing the same game just again with little little tweaks and mostly you're just convincing yourself like ah this is completely different when really it's not it's it's the operational art of war does golden heights it's like scenarios rather than actual like real new campaigns yeah except for the korean war one which actually does feel like a whole game that is... but that's that's like the thing that that game was created to make okay <laughs> quick thing here the operation of war's true sweet spot is like massive bloody amphibious or peninsular campaigns yes. like italy amazing scenario just a majestic like 85 turn uh just slog up the peninsula it's glorious um korea genuinely a great scenario played it you know dozens of times uh if you ever played the taipei scenario uh that thing is just blood curdling everyone should check it out blood curdling is such a great recommendation <laughs> Unlike Civ, the operational art of war is has also been basically the same interface for all those years. Yeah, uh, so that's that's been a bit of an issue. Yeah, I can't look at those war games without being like, seriously, update this shit. It like looks like the game still did in the seventies. Well, it's four, with four they did. With four they gave it its greatest graphical I mean, overhaul. I'm looking at four, and I'm but like, I'm, really not, wrong, I'm not even really. talking the graphics. I'm just talking like movement and yeah. Finding the information UI. and so on. Yeah. It gives me nightmares. <laughs> Look, I'm Sorry. just happy when one of these things <laughs> recognizes right clicking. <laughs> but but I would also say that the my real point is that the operational art of war might be the very best example of this. Uh, and it's a pity that we were talking about Steel Division so we couldn't have Troy on to argue with me about Age of Rifles, but man, I was so excited about Age of Rifles when it came out. Uh, or war game construction set three, yeah. I think it was. Uh, you know that would cover post Napoleon to pre World War One and be able to do you know all the American Civil War and Crimean and Franco Prussian War battles. And God, I cannot remember like loving a single thing in that game other than the idea of it. And the way that it would try to model these various campaigns just never seemed to quite click for me. Like, the Civil War battles were okay. That's where I spent most of my time, unsurprisingly. But then I tried to do the Franco-Prussian War, and I got to Sedan, which is, you know, one of the most famous battles in world history. And there were, like, a dozen German units 
behind a hill and a gigantic French army and the scope felt entirely wrong and it felt like I was trying to solve a puzzle to route everything at once instead of just like fighting a battle and maybe that's what Sedan is supposed to be like but it just like coming from the American Civil War things which were you know 30 to 50 brigades going at each other on each side going to something like that just was like I don't I don't get a feel for why this is supposed to be special. I don't I don't understand what what the whole setting switch has done for the game here. Why didn't you just make a civil war game if that's what you wanted to do? Um and that's even one of the better ones like I don't know if you all go back this far, but I played, and I had to Google it because I tried to wipe it from my memory, uh, Universal Military Simulator 2 Nations at War, which was... It's a heck of a name. Yeah, well, it, the first one, the first Universal Military Simulator, apparently, had uh, five battles, Hastings, Gettysburg, Waterloo, Arbella, and Marston Moore. But then the second one went to be like a full-on strategic campaign mode where you could play like the Western Front in World War II, the Punic Wars, which I think were the ones I spent the most time on, uh, the campaigns of Alexander and one other incredibly important uh, campaign, and every single one of them was utter shit. And I'm looking at the Wikipedia for it while I was Googling it, and it said, in 1996, Computer Gaming World declared UMS Two Nations at War the eighth worst computer game ever released. So, like, there's a lot of attempts to go for ambition here and try to create this ideal thing that can fit all settings, and I think they all largely suck. <laughs> the end. I... <laughs> but I, I do think it's this, um... Like, you see this happen again and again across uh, Wargaming in particular, where, well, I've got this system that works well enough for this one war or battle that I wanted to model. Uh, surely it can it can do more of them. And as you begin to push that, uh, it that begins to break down. But also, like, there's just core decisions about scale that begin to... Uh, translate increasingly poorly. Like, I really liked uh, Pike and Shot. Uh, sort of that original uh, that original edition, the, the first stuff that came out for it. I really liked uh, Pike and Shot because it, maybe in part because, because I didn't know very much about uh, the wars of that period, 30 Years War, uh, you know, the war of uh, I think Spanish succession. Um but it's also making some really clear arguments about, okay, so how did armies of this period with a mixture of pike units, um, you know, musket-only units, uh, mixed pike and, uh, well, hence the name, pike and shot, like mixed pike and shot units, uh, different sorts of, of cavalry. How, how, you know, what did, what were the dynamics driving battles with these sort of huge... Uh, you know, last gasp of the phalanx type type units, and its assumption in those early campaigns is that, well, it's really just about busting these units up and then causing sort of a cascading route uh, within those armies to the point where the the entire enemy formation breaks up, and. At the very least, that's a really specific vision 
and is therefore pretty cool as far as I'm concerned. Like it gives me a sense of ah, this is this is what you know battles from from this period should feel like. Um, as you begin to adapt that outside that model, uh, it feels like it begins to feel like you're just trying to port that over to different conflicts and it doesn't it it no longer it no longer feels like you're playing a game about history it feels like you're playing a uh you know campaign pack or something for you know for for the core game uh i think this is one reason i just ended up kind of bouncing off uh sengoku jedi uh, i was just about to bring that up because it's the same system really but samurai yeah i liked it I liked it more than Pike and Shot. I mean, it's it's a much better looking game. Uh, that for... there's a lot of that. I'm very, <laughs> very, very shallow. <laughs> yeah, but like, but then I was also I was really surprised because I, I hadn't actually. So I played Pike and Shot before I'd ever played Field uh, Field, Field of Glory, and so when we went back into Field of Glory too, which is a cool game. I like it, uh, but again, I was really surprised by. Oh damn! Like this is this is extreme. This is extremely pike and shot, right? Like it's it's again like uh, find these like closely packed formations of enemy units, smack them around, get a good route started, and uh, you know that that's kind of the the art of warfare in these uh, in these games. But is that that's the other part? Is is that an infinitely interesting problem to solve? Like, even if even if you're making the argument that every like battle, roughly in this period, or or that follows, you know, these these dynamics, uh, that you can make an argument that the key tactic was shattering morale of key units and cre- watching a sort of chain reaction cascade effect run through the enemy army. Even if you're making the argument in good faith that, like, yeah, that's roughly a good way to get across the core dynamics of, of of this period, is that an infinitely interesting problem to solve? Right? Like, is doing that, but now it's now it's samurai in Japan. Oh, you know, now it's uh, you know Italian, you know, uh, troops troops fighting, uh, you know, among the Italian city states. Is that something you just want to do again and again? in different settings that's why i think it's we're not <laughs> looking for something to be trans like have pike and shot transposed to like samurai it, but rather have that foundation uh and then build on that with different systems because they're not exactly the same game they start in a very similar place but then there are a lot of different features that it adds on top of of pike and shot and it'll have quite a a different selection of units and i think it does feel like a pretty different game rather than just a kind of fresh coat of a very attractive paint yeah well i'm, I'm curious though like like so, sorry um i just wanted to ask when we we when we switched over to total war here <laughs> i was just thinking <laughs> about that because i i had never played pike and shot but pretty much everything you said could have gone that way that's true, and then I re- reveal myself to be a hypocrite with an infinite <laughs> thirst for, uh, well, sort of. Like, it's also infinite thirst to hate on this game sometimes, too, uh, because I am kind of sick of some of the key mechanics. Uh, but at the same time, that's a very good point. I'm always like, 
damn, can't wait to just arrange armies from this period <laughs> or setting in a really orderly battle battle line on a battlefield completely divorced from uh you know the actual landscape and then fight an abstract battle uh between like five thousand troops. It's tidying up really you get this neat these neat little battle lines and then you just clear the map. It's very cathartic. I don't you can't go wrong with it. There should be every game should be as, as simple and elegant as that. But the uh, the thing that specifically I was thinking about is when you were talking about how this model of like finding the enemy's weakest spots, making them rout, and having that cascade—that's what I want out of every total war. And the ones that don't give it to me are the ones I don't like. So <laughs> <laughs> that's what Shogun Two did best, and that's why Shogun Two was the best out of the box. And like, okay, if, if this works best for samurai, we're gonna do samurai. Well, I think the other thing that is uh, interesting in the Total War series is that they start trying to standardize the sort of arc of every campaign, no matter what the setting, no matter what the historical moment, right? Where um, the paradox approach, for instance, is just like in certain settings, some people are just ready to become superpowers, right? You know, EU4 if you want to just like play on easy mode and just like push people around as you come up to speed on this game, the Ottomans in France are right there. You can just do that. And if you play somebody else in that period that has to deal with one of these powers, they're going to make your life very hard. They be, those become like early, like challenges you really have to face, which is these, these superpowers on your border. But the game has sort of pre, like the game is willing to have, to acknowledge that like there are certain predispositions uh, that a certain moment in history has to generating certain outcomes. Uh, there's kind of historical moment, momentum behind a lot of what happens in, in its games. Uh, the total war model by trying to say that every game should start from like, ah, you, you know, you control one or two provinces and then you build your empire from there. That's, that's the fun of this game is to going from a very small start to filling in the entire map, uh, in your color. Um, I have always felt like that's one of the things that really tends to drive those games to feeling a bit more generic in some ways, because if every faction has to feel like they're following the same arc and has to roughly be balanced against one another. Uh, I don't know. I, I think it ends up making those games feel a little more slog-like than they necessarily have to. Uh, but that's been their approach with, with every setting, right? Uh, you know, if you're playing, if you're playing total Warhammer, the empire isn't an empire. It's like, they've well, got roots though, that make it, easier yeah. like some have an easier time to uh kind of create a union than others or conquer others there are definitely factions where you are going to be big really quickly uh i i agree with you though in general i think that total war could really benefit from having uh, a slightly more uh interesting uh, map at the beginning without all of these factions having roughly the same sort of number of provinces um, it doesn't even have to be provinces but like army sizes tech levels just little things I, I'm, I'm bored of total war when it's really balanced 
Yeah, and I think the Total Warhammer 1 is the one that did the best job of rejecting that. Like, the Empire, as Fraser said, like, it starts with this thing, and that makes for a good tutorial, but you can quickly ramp up, but you are also just as quickly, or not just as quickly, but you're inevitably going to be taking the second wave of the chaos invasion like if you have been moderately successful in any way so you will get the biggest but you will get hurt the hardest and that chaos invasion is so specific in how it comes uh, that it like goes down the center of the map and takes out the sort of uh, outside of the empire before splitting up and hitting everybody that uh that that campaign has a bunch of personality that I think a lot of the others don't. Yeah, and I think they also, again with Warhammer, they started embracing the idea that uh, faction design can differentiate them more strongly uh, as well. Wood elves. Uh, yeah, I mean, like like factions that require a great deal of finesse to to carry off or. Uh, a real understanding of how to make the best of trash units, uh, which again, like to to Skaven, to, yeah, my disability with like <laughs> Warsaw Pack tactics. I'm like I'm the worst with the Skaven because I'm like so wait like how is this enough troops? And the answer is no, it's it's not. It's never enough. And troops. then the other answer is I'm like so I should just keep trying to flank these guys and like not let my troops break right. And it's like no. My f- no. My favorite thing with the Skaven is you've got like two armies of Skaven against one lizard. The lizard's gonna win. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think, but I think Total War is an interesting example here. Uh, but I think its solution has generally been adapt every setting to Total War, right? Make every setting yeah. a little bit more like Total War, uh, with some exceptions. I, I feel that with. Uh, Napoleon Empire. and okay. oh yeah, Empire's a good yeah. Uh, yeah, Empire's a good example too. It, sometimes it feels like the setting is actually forcing their hand. Empire's a good example of where it went wrong. <laughs> yeah, where they're they're clearly struggling to like that is a they're trying to model a colonial period where war is operating in multiple different theaters, driven by dynamics of like trade mercantilism and it's total war and you're just not built it's just not built for that and all the armies are the same yeah that that was the other thing was the lack of like really distinctive units made it a bit boring yeah i think people just need to understand uh that musket there's huge amounts of variety in the horse and musket period. It just depends on which specific regiment you're talking about. Yes, they may <laughs> look very similar, but if you really pay attention to the color of their facings and braid on those <laughs> uniforms, uh, you'll really understand the breadth of personality and uh, faction identity uh, that exists in the period. Um, Rob is never happier than when he gets to explain these things. <laughs> never. Uh, I think the maybe place to leave off here uh we'll be doing a longer show about this in the very near future for sure but uh lately we've all been playing imperator which is the new paradox game about uh you know ancient rome and And it's and it's colorful friends does kind of feel like roman friends in some ways doesn't it <laughs> yeah 
but I, but I think this is actually the, the but the, this is actually a, a good point. Like there are, and, and don't worry, this show is going to go up well after the embargo is over, so we 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 can speak freely here among ourselves. Uh, but the but the thing there is, um, so it's a paradox strategy game set in the Roman world. Uh, I was struck by how much it. I shouldn't be surprised by this, but to me it feels very familiar as someone who's played, like, as someone who is most familiar with EU4. As someone who's, like, European Universalis is, like, kind of my core paradox game, and everything else I've sort of learned to muddle through. But EU is kind of my my main game, and I was surprised by how much this does feel like Europa Universalis Rome a little Where bit. already exists. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This, this thing they specifically it said it was not going to be. They were like... Yeah, but now they're like, it's an actual sequel. We've just not used the name. And it feels like it, but in a in a good way. I, I think it's kind of interesting that you, as someone who likes EU the most, is finding it really EU-like, because as someone who enjoys CK2 more, I'm finding it a lot like CK2, despite the sort of extra level of distance you have from your nation where you're playing this sort of the nation or the spirit of the nation or whoever's in charge at the time rather than a dynasty or an individual. Well, um, I like it. I like both of them equally. And I think Rob's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think why am I right? That's the thing, right? Like for me, I, I like, I have this feeling, but I haven't played in like, yeah. And I'm mostly playing it as Rome. And it so it feels more like, uh, a, CK2, I think, when you're playing as, like, a kingdom, because you have the same concerns as you do as, like, a, a king or a dynasty in CK2, whereas when the politics in the Senate and the Republic make it feel more like a mixture between Vicky and EU4. I wish it felt more like Vicky. I wish all games felt more like Vicky. <laughs> uh, I, I, wish, I wish Vicky felt like more, more like EU4 in terms of, you know, updates and... yes. Uh, interface additions um, but I think the thing is like it has those like ruler points that EU4 has that's the big one for me is that like you are you have I think you know the fans call them mana points or whatever uh, but you have these ticking abstract concepts of finesse and military and religion that are going up in the same way that you had the monarch points in EU4 and that's that's the main connection to me and like EU4 I thought did a really good job of putting those together like you are your ruler and you either have to fight that because your ruler sucks or you embrace that and you know ride the golden age um whereas it feels sort of tacked on in Imperator, and I I am not quite as excited about it as I had hoped that I would be, um, because it feels like it's an expansion to a game that I have played that doesn't quite fit the setting as much as I want it to. Um, I still like it, like, don't take this as a don't-buy-this-game thing, we're not talking Stellaris here, uh, but... Uh, yeah, it it does it does feel like it's in this weird kind of gray area where it feels like it's obligated from Paradox to do an ancient world game, and so they have adapted you know some of the best of EU four and CK two and put them together, but it doesn't quite feel like this is this is Rome a la Paradox. It's this is Paradox kind of doing Rome. I think the one similarity it has with Stellaris is that. 
much like with Stellaris, you're completely wrong. <laughs> Superb. Uh, I I adore it. I mean, I think if we're, I kind of want to save this up for the proper Imperator. But we're not uh, sure you're going to be on that because you have a life on weekends now. It's true. Three yeah, MA panelists, like when you sign on, it's like. So my life's a smoking rack, right? And then it's like, <laughs> hell yeah, let's talk about strategy games. But you, with your friends and your social networks... This dog. It's mostly my dog. Um, <laughs> God. Yeah, okay, Are you I'll debauching your dog? Come on, Max, let's get a pint. <laughs> let's go to the club. Everyone you are starting to post pictures from just wandering paisley in the middle of the night. Oh yeah, I did that. <laughs> anyway... Um, I, I felt that it was actually really cohesive. I felt that it wasn't just a spin-off. In the, so, because that's the thing with the original EU Rome was that you could see that they were trying to shake up uh, EU a little bit with some of the stuff they'd experimented with in the original uh, Crusader Kings and a bit of Vicky and create a sort of amalgam of them all. And it didn't all really work that well but that i think since then we've seen much better paradox games for paradox to draw from so we've got ck2 for instance being a much better example to follow than ck1 uh but it, it they've not just stitched it together it feels really it flows very nicely especially as rome as a republic if you are actually juggling all these squabbling senators and politicians and generals who at any moment can just have a tantrum and tear the country apart and you're looking at these big picture stuff demographics building your infrastructure you can even build roads now it's magnificent at the same time still dealing with the petty human elements it comes together just really well yeah i mean there's there's things i and to be clear, yeah, I do not mean to be bagging on it when I say like it feels like like EU. I think part of one reason I do like it so much is it, for me, hits a lot of the notes I've really enjoyed from Europa Universalis. But uh, at the same time, like I think I'm like I'm persistently sort of taken aback, for instance, by uh the weirdly specific amount of like population control this game gives you where like it's roughly plausible in like eu that you have a detailed like ethnographic breakdown of a given province or the you know the religions that people who live there follow it never fails to kind of astonish me that like in rome you have this re like this really powerful capacity to just change the identity of entire regions uh, you know, that you control with a few clicks of the button. And for some reason, that ability to do that so effortlessly, like, I understand, like, taking Rome specifically, over time, yes, they do change the culture and uh, identification of a lot of the regions they control, right? But nevertheless, it does astonish me that sort of these historical processes that are really not guided from on high and are also really slow acting 
here it seems to adopt, I think, maybe an even more aggressive model than EU does. Where EU, it's like, okay, there's this has a huge investment of time and resources to carry carry off something like this. In Rome, it's just very much like, look, you want to make these people Romans or not? And it's like, I'm pretty sure any Roman emperor would have been like, yeah, we need to make these people Romans. But they couldn't because that's because no ruler of that period had that capacity. But because of the way this game is designed and sort of the the places it seems to be drawing its inspiration, suddenly you do have some of this weirdness, right? Where like, damn, the Romans must send out one hell of a census. You don't understand, man. Everyone wants to be Roman. They're just waiting for the opportunity for the censor to come and be like, "Who are you?" And they're like, "Roman." <laughs> okay. Someone shows up with like a like brochures about like the Hellenic pantheon, and you're like, "Oh, fucking finally!" It is strange though because you have certain parts of the game that where it's a lot less abstract than previous Pyro's games, but this is where it, it you're just pressing a button and suddenly this like pop is roman uh and they're chill you can with also it. do it yeah they're like they're happy it's a good thing if <laughs> right. you've got problems in your region you look and you're like that fucking guy's not roman that's this is, why this is the weird thing they, they've got two systems that they're doing this with you can have governors who are like okay i'm trying to make these people roman and you hover over that, and the governor pursuing that policy, as you'd expect, is pissing people off, right? Because he's constantly going around being like, well, look who's following well, a monotheistic pagan guy. how good your governor is, though, as well. I think because you can have governors that, like, do it really easily. And you can, because you can see how many people they've actually converted, which is quite handy. And it's effortless, whereas sometimes there's a greater cost to just going the easy route because you can increase corruption and then there's also you're using your points to right. actually and you do uh, exactly so it's certainly in the end uh, the beginning game where you maybe don't have this massive horde of points uh converting a whole city is just out of the question it's not going to happen uh, so you've got to use the governor. So I actually I like having the alternative when I'm loaded, and I actually don't care about corruption anymore because everyone's corrupt already. Just start making everyone Roman again. Yeah, but though, though I think that that is one of the areas where I think it doesn't really feel like, you know, this Roman setting has been adapted. Like it makes sense from a gameplay perspective that these points that you can use, you can either, you know, do one set that slowly builds it through the governor, or you can just blow a bunch and do it directly. Like that's an interesting game mechanic choice. It just doesn't feel terribly ancient world to me. Um, I think that I found interesting. There were like events while you're doing it. Is that, do you think that would have, made yeah, it a that, little bit more interesting. That sort of thing, like... It's also, I don't feel like the points are super well-balanced right now, and this is largely because I think I haven't been playing Rome that much, although I did. I am pretty deep into a game now. Um, but the, the states on the periphery of the map don't seem to have quite as much, like this is exactly what the game is made for thing where you know i'm desperate to get legal points with uh, my spanish tribe that are perfectly normal and easy to have everywhere with you know the eparos or rome that i have been playing um a thing that i brought up in our chat that uh i found really interesting is that like there are four active paradox historical strategy games right now 
and each one of them has a fabricate claim button, and each fabricate claim button <laughs> is different in each game. Yeah, that was what I was sure that I was missing something with fabricate claim in the beginning because it was so different and so easy. Yeah, uh, I'm so glad because I can't be arsed with like waiting or like it is quite simple in so- in Imperator. It's just you just do it. It's done. So, so in Imperator, you spend one of your, you spend like 200 legal points to do it, and you get that claim immediately, and the only thing you have to wait for is the month for your diplomat to come back in order to declare war. Um, so that is, like, by far the most straightforward of them. In Crusader Kings 2, you send your Chancellor, who has a percentage opportunity to fabricate a claim, depending on how good he is, that can hit each month. And then you have to pay money to, like, access that claim when you get it. Uh, and this seems to fit the idea of the medieval era fairly well. Like, and Crusader Kings 2 as a game. Like, you're, you know, throwing, you have a random smart-ass dude going out throwing shit at the wall being like, who, what, 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 piece of paper can I forge here that will allow my ruler to take over this land? And then he can be bribed and, like, just not do anything while he's there, which adds to the role-playing element. Like, I, I think that one works well. It's stupid and annoying when it doesn't fire, but that's part of Crusader Kings too. Like, sometimes that game is stupid and annoying. Um, in EU4 and Hearts of Iron to a similar extent, you just basically spend the time to fabricate the claim. Um, you you pay a cost and that cost takes up a certain amount of time and then three months later you have that um and this makes somewhat more sense in the kind of nationalistic worlds that they are increasingly having in eu4 and obviously like dominate hearts of iron but uh it takes away some of the randomness and some of the role-playing elements of the crusader kings 2 thing so going back over to Imperator, I just, like, I like the simplicity of it, but I don't even know why they call it Fabricate Claim anymore. It doesn't seem to fit the ancient world quite so much. Stir ethnic hatred. (laughs) Or or even just, like, I want city, give me city. (laughs) Um, They've got a term for it that they've had across multiple games. Right. So I guess it just, it's still fundamentally doing the same thing isn't it you're basically saying this part of this country is the slice i want that's my objective you know that then i won't get any i won't piss anyone off by declaring war for this specific reason right but the main the main issue with it is that it takes legal points which have tended to be the ones that i have had the hardest time acquiring um so that with rome it's like you're just swimming in them yeah, and also Rome gets a whole bunch of uh, fabrications all over just from events. I think um, most of the big nations actually get uh, like one of those event things where, because you get it as Macedon as well, where it's like, um, and I think actually as Rome, when you're conquering uh, nations, you get them. So I think when you move in, uh, when you, like you move into Greece, you almost immediately get now uh, conquer all of Greece, uh, and you get a bunch of new claims. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, just in general, like it's it it goes back into this abstracted 
not monarch points anymore, the, the, their, you know, nation points or whatever that, like, I don't, I'm not quite connecting with as an aspect of the history in the way that the other three paradox historical games really do with me. And this is why I think right now I'm not quite as high on Imperator as I was with the other three at launch, but it's got a lot of room to grow that, and I think feel fairly confident that it will. Much like my ancient empire, Just plenty of room to fill in such an attractive color uh, to, to paint the map. in. I think something I really do dig is that I think it strikes a really nice balance with giving you enough detail of factional politics in Rome to like buy into the idea of, Hey, there's actual factional politics here. There's actual things happening within the nation of Rome that I need to be paying attention to because they will have ramifications, but without bogging me down in like kind of an off-brand CK2 thing too much where like, I'm just constantly managing uh, like relationships between notable Roman families. Uh, You know, I don't have to like you, you have far fewer options for those interactions in, in Rome uh than than you do in like ck2 um and I think that ends up dovetailing really nicely with you know some of the dynamics that you're familiar with from just how uh the republican era kind of, like ends with increasingly uh personally loyal legions uh forming like no like notable romans who just like create bases of power completely independent of senatorial authority. Uh, I think the game does do, this is one of the parts that I, that I really do appreciate is that this feels roughly right to me. It, it feels it, like it is really cool to me when somebody that I have basically chosen to politically marginalize for ages. Like, you know, I've not like, I've been too expansionistic to be bothered with um, like the religious faction much. Uh, and when I'm not expanding, I'm like investing in building up infrastructure. And so I like go to pains to just marginalize the religious faction and uh, the people who the families that tend to uh, represent it. And it's really cool when that sort of not quite blows back in your face because it's not that binary. But you start to realize that you've got a problem because one day these people could be back in power and suddenly this entire power base you've created with these other leading families is potentially a secessionist movement or revolutionary movement. Uh, and then, you know, things like, oh, this has been a really important and successful general and a great legion. Why isn't it responding to my orders anymore? Oh, right. Uh because now they're kind of doing their own thing and they're not really under senatorial control anymore. Stuff like that, like that stuff does feel specific to the setting and it feels very cleverly specific. Uh, it's, it's not, it's not so uh, overwhelming in the amount of granular detail that it takes you away from a lot of the core stuff you want to be doing in a paradox game like this. Uh, but it does sort of get across the highlights of a lot of the Roman history that we, that we know. Yeah. I, I, th- I, I do agree with that from my, my Spanish tribal game or whatever. Um, another interesting thing that I was going with was uh, uh 
there's a civilization level. Uh, I was playing a settled tribe, and I was trying to build them towards being like an actual democracy, um, because then I could actually afford heavy infantry and heavy cavalry. But as soon as I started building the civilization level, uh, that meant that like my leaders' personal retinues that were the core of my army wouldn't grow as much because civilization would cause them not to grow. Uh, the lower the civilization, the bigger those retinues were. So, like, I hit a an interesting point where I was almost civilized enough to become the democracy and have, like, regular armies of the sort that, you know, Roman Carthage had, as opposed to these personal tribal things. Um, but all my neighbors that had not been doing that had, like, three times more units, or, or three times bigger armies than I did. And like that was a really interesting tension that I was forced to deal with was like how quickly can I manage to get this before someone just overruns me totally That's uh, awesome. or I or I piss off you know my tribal leaders too much uh so it's it's sort of the Roman thing in micro when I'm playing as Rome now you know I'm like 40 years in or so I've I've conquered most of Italy uh it this all feels like I'm Everyone's happy because everyone's, you know, expanding quickly enough that things are going nicely, but the decisions that I'm making are going to slowly build up over time. Like, right now, I'm like, tyranny? What's tyranny? Who cares? But I feel like the game is built so that eventually that tyranny rating will be extremely relevant to how I can't control everybody. And that's my big hope, is that, like, it models that civil war in really interesting ways, and from what you guys have said, that seems to be the case. And it's not even just civil wars. When you get a, a Roman raising an army, it's not they're they're necessarily going to be your adversary or the adversary of Rome. There might be like there's like squabbles between actual cities where they're squaring up to each other, um, or just people being like dissatisfied with the consul, so they raise an army to just show that they mean business. And maybe they'll actually go and just beat up a bunch of barbarians. Um, like civil war isn't always the end result. Uh, and sometimes you can just wait them out and they'll be like, okay, we're not, uh, we're just calling your bluff. We're not really going to start a civil war. But the, the best one was when I was very, very, very busy in Carthage, uh, winning a war over there. And I kind of forgotten all about Rome, thinking it was safe, forgetting the Carthaginians have boats. Uh, so I didn't realize that like half of Italy had been like conquered by Carthage. Uh, and one of my nobles just got so sick of how crap I was that he uh, just raised an army and marched to meet the Carthaginians and fought them off and ultimately kind of saved Rome on his own without my help. So sometimes they How'd can actually that work be out? quite... And there was no, um, he was like, was he a Cincinnati type? Like, and my job this... is done. This is yeah, it, absolutely. Amazing. He actually like I I sail back because I was like, holy shit! So now we've got like this angry general who has lots of troops. The Carthaginians are gone. What's he gonna do now? He stood around for ages. Then I think some barbarians declared war. He marched up north, killed them, and then after that war, he just went home. <laughs> that was it. What like, a guy! One of the things that. Sola. <laughs> <laughs> uh one of my like strategies or not even necessarily like I have created a great deal like gerontocracy in my version of Rome where it's like 
yeah, this kid's like 30 years old, and he's clearly the best military commander by a long shot of any other Romans who are eligible for this post. Um, the problem is he's 30 years old, and I don't want a dude wandering around as like an elite general <laughs> for like 30 years with his that own freaking legion. I, I made too many 16-year-olds generals. That was... <laughs> That was my problem. No, you need... That's the thing. Is like, just the backbone... Like, the, the two pillars of my version of Rome are, like, old, competent generals, but on their last legs. Like, every campaign, it's, like, uh, seven samurai, basically. Like, we're, we're like, look, I just need some old dudes to get together some ass kickers and go get this thing done. And then they can go, like, you know... To, just you know right off into the sunset uh die of old age or die gloriously but the main thing is they do need to die uh pretty soon because i can't have them being like war heroes for 25 30 years uh with a legion that is fully loyal to them uh because that's just going to get really complicated so i've got a lot of like tensions that are continually being resolved by people just passing away peacefully um but that's only worked up to a point. There's now a lot of people creating their own armies. Yeah. Just to be things like... Things could get out of control pretty quickly. Have they started... Do, have you seen things where, like... Because when I finally took Carthage, um, we, there was a lot of looting. And then the, uh, the main army that I'd left there were intensely loyal. All of them to general. There's nothing I could do. So I kind of just thought... I'll leave them really far away. <laughs> like, I'll leave them just in Carthage. They could just... Hopefully this guy will die of old age. But no, they just kept looting Carthage over and over again. Oh, no. Until everyone in North Africa was just so furious. It exploded in a civil war. And I'm like, whose side am I on? <laughs> because ultimately I was then controlling the guys that I was like, had a grudge with. Um to beat up the Carthaginians who had every right to revolt. In the end, I was like, should I just give them Carthage back? Honestly, one of the (laughs) best, uh, like, models of imperialism that Paradox has ever done in that case. I've 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 noticed a lot of these little things happening where, like, they have these un- they have these surprising moments of autonomy that and it doesn't go where you think it's going to go that instead of starting like a civil war they make someone else start a civil war i uh, uh this i is- could see why you gave this game a 7 fraser <laughs> uh this is why i tend to like the other backbone of my roman empire are just content slightly lazy uh philosopher type dudes like, whenever somebody's, like, ambitious, I'm like, hmm, don't know if I want to put you in a key post. But if there is a dude who's just like, man, I just like music and hanging out, and my ambition is that I'm content in life. I'm like, well, time for you to administer the newly conquered territories. <laughs> I haven't even looked at that. I've been, like, trying to make sure my families are happy. So I should maybe I maybe have to pay more attention to those traits. I was paying attention to the traits when I was doing the tribes because the tribes like automatically have the the gerontology uh, or gerontocracy uh, because only the the only successors to a pr- 
a tribal chief who dies are the heads of the families who are almost always old dudes or depending on some of the tribes have women the one i was doing was not but uh that that created an interesting thing of trying to keep those families happy because if you had two of those tribes that was literally half your army if the two of them were unhappy and that just like was like here's your civil war countdown good luck hope you have enough points to bribe them um so yeah that that it seems like the robe thing has that on macro that I was dealing with on micro, and like that this is a part of the game that I think is uh, successful right off the bat. Uh, well, we will dig into that discussion more, and I'm confident we'll be talking about themes and settings and how games are tackling them or different games tackle them. Uh, lots more in the future, but we will leave it there for this week and be back next week with uh, hopefully the Imperator Show. Uh, Three Moves Ahead is hosted in the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Uh, finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, that also has further information about our super secret Discord server where we occasionally do talk about strategy games uh, and lots about labor rights and game development and... Uh, things that things that piss us off uh but strategy game discussion does make its way up there uh fairly regularly and we also get some games together uh over there sometimes uh anyway we'll be back next week with another episode of three moves ad until then for fraser and rowan this is rob zachney saying good night <laughs>